Welcome to the On The Way podcast, a podcast exploring a non-dualistic, uh, non-violent, compassionate faith life. My name is Dom Fay. We are back on Zoom today for a very special reason. Sue Grimmett and Peter Cat are here. And I'm actually going to do something I'm not sure I've ever done on the podcast before, which is throw to somebody else to introduce today's guest, um, because it is someone who has been pivotal in the life of many, in the lives of many, but uh, especially in, in terms of this podcast's context, Peter Cat. So, Peter, I will uh, ask you to introduce today's guest. Uh, my absolute privilege. Thank you, Dom. Um, our guest today is uh, Richard Holloway, who comes to us from Edinburgh. And my first exposure to Richard was in uh, 1986 when the bishop who was in charge of my formation program came to a reflection day and said he, he had read probably the most profound book he had read in his life. And he recommended that all of us ordinands read it. And it was a book by a guy I'd never heard of, <laughs> a guy called Richard Holloway, and it was called The Sidelong Glance. And it was the first time I read anyone suggest that we actually need to look at how we look at things. Mm. And for me, it was a pivotal experience in my formation. And then in 2001, Richard came and spoke at the Philosophy, Science and Theology Festival that we ho had in Grafton every second year. And I was delighted that he actually ate at my dinner table. So welcome, Richard. Lovely to see you again. Thank you. It's a it's a joy to have you on, Richard. I, I have to say, I think um, I think it was the very first conversation I ever had with Peter Cat back in twenty fourteen, uh, twenty fifteen maybe. He he mentioned your work um to me. I think at the time we were talking about um sort of the people who'd influenced uh, him most along the journey, and your name came up. So it's a real treat to to have you here with us today. We're discussing your latest book, um, which has just recently been published. Um stories we tell ourselves uh the blurb is that throughout history we have told ourselves stories to try and make sense of what it all means our place in a small corner of one of billions of galaxies at the end of billions of years of existence this book takes us on a personal scientific and ph philosophical journey to explore what richard believes the answers to the biggest of questions are um, it's a it's a fascinating book richard i have to say it's it, it's probably the most engrossing um, the most engrossing theological uh, sort of book. I mean, I'm not. It's not strictly theological, but theological book that I can come across in terms of just a whole sweeping notion of what it is to be a human. Um, a, a question I just wanted to start with. You, you are um, in your mid 80s. You have written extensively for you know throughout the majority of your life. What is it that now in your mid 80s in in 2020 that made you think this is the book that I have to write? I guess it's because I'm, I still can't um, come to a conclusion about any of this. Um, and I've been wrestling with these issues, I guess, maybe not all my life, but um, I was ordained um, when I was, what, 25 years old. Um, I was in the ministry of the church for a long time. I wrestled with... Um, the meaning of God, the possibility of the existence of the non-existence of God. Um, I loved a lot about religion, but I increasingly came to dislike um, its cruel side because one of the problems with having an absolute fix on the meaning of life, I mean, let's face it, we're thrown into existence. Uh, we don't know whether it means anything, whether the universe means anything. Unlike the other animals, we are obsessed with meaning, with our own existence. Um, we can't help asking these questions. I mean, the fact that we are having this discussion this morning, you're in sunny Australia, I'm in frozen Scotland. Um, <laughs> here we are, human beings, talking about ourselves because we're an object of interest to ourselves. The sheep on the Pentland Hills I walk aren't doing that. The animals in the zoo aren't doing that. Humans do it because we're a puzzle to ourselves. Um, and because we don't like mystery and uncertainty, uh, we manufacture these certainties that give us a kind of comfort, a kind of consolation. And religion is one of them. Religion is one of the, the ways we've answered this big question of meaning. And I'm still a religiously practicing 
a person, but one of the things I discovered late in my life was that there was a deeply cruel side to religion. Um, I experienced it particularly um, during the Lambeth Conference of 1998. Lambeth Conferences are horrible affairs. All the bishops in the Anglican world come together in student accommodation in Canterbury. Can you imagine anything more <laughs> revolting than that? Um, all these mainly men wandering about in purple dresses, now women, um, uh, have joined us. Um, and we had a debate on that um, particular Lambeth conference about the status of gay people. Uh, we'd wrestled with whether women could be equal in the church, whether they could be ordained. Um, uh, uh, even to think that that was doubtful shows the absurdity of all of this. And it took us ages to get to a point when we said, let's just do it, because we were told by the Bible we couldn't do it, um, because women were meant to be subordinate to men. Paul said they shouldn't speak in church, um, and so on. And we, we resolved that finally after years of debate. Lambeth 98, it was the status of gays, whether God loved gays, whether gays could love one another, um, and the Bible said no, and it was a horrible experience um, because the conference decided to shut down the debate rather than keep it going, keep discussing these difficult things. It said, no, it's over. Um, we know that gayness is, is, uh, is revolting to God. Um, and something died in me. I kind of walked away because I realized this thing I'd given my life to, filled with uncertainty, filled with beauty, filled with poetry, filled with music, was also filled with cruelty. Mm. Because if you, if you had these passionate religious convictions and you're quite a good person, it gave you permission to do bad things. I mean, that's what they say about religion. The bad people will do bad things, but religion gives good people permission to do bad things. That was the horror that hit me. And, and so I kind of, I, I left, I took a sabbatical from practicing um, uh, Christianity for about 20 years. Then gradually I came back in to a kind of agnostic practice. Um, I love so much about Christianity, especially the radical message of Jesus, who challenged cruelty and power and preach forgiveness. So I, can't, I found myself coming back, and this book, I suppose, is the story I've been telling about how that happened to me. Um, and I think that one of the things that we do, we puzzled human beings thrown into existence, is we try to figure out who we are by telling different stories, rival stories. And at the end of my life, I was 87 a couple of weeks ago, I'm, I'm on the last roundabout, I would expect, uh, struggling on with weak knees, but a big heart. Um, and so I wanted to write this book just to find, well, where the hell are you now at the end of your life? You're just about to um, say goodbye. Um, so let's figure it out. So, so I wrote the book partly to answer my own questions. What story do you now seek to live by? And I found myself wanting to live by the story of Jesus, whether or not there is a God. Because it seems to me that what Jesus is saying to us is that it's action that counts, not words. He said, not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. But he that gives a cup of cold water, he that visits those in prison, he's the, he that acts, she that acts. So it's action that counts. And that's where I've ended up. Yeah, well, it, and, and that's what comes through the book. One one of my particular favourite parts is when you talked about the religious game that many people um, tend to play with each other, where you write, we think we are engaging with reality. We are offering objective descriptions of the way things are. We are pinning down the facts, but there's always a catch. The catch is that while this is the truth of what we are doing, it is not what others are up to. Their <laughs> efforts often are just stories, stuff they made up comforting illusions they wanted to believe in while our stories are the truth it's uh i remembered reading that and there's a whole bunch of moments like this throughout the book where it felt so liberating to to have something that i have known to capture myself seen capture others just absolutely named do you think maybe the fact that you are 87 now that you've had this stage of agnosticism do you think maybe that gave you the freedom to just in a sense, cut the, the rubbish and just call it as it is? 
I, I think it's partly that because um, looking back in my own life, I believe contradictory things. Um, I had a very conservative phase uh, theologically. Um, I can remember I was probably preaching against my own inner doubt. I mean, one of the things we know about um, ourselves as humans is that those bits of ourselves we can't accept, we often denounce in others. I mean, the self-hating gay person is a very is a very good example of that. The person who can't admit that I love people of my own sex very often are led to persecute um, people like themselves. We know this. And I, even as a young priest, uh, I was always struggling with the possibility that there may not be what we mean by God. Um, and how can we know for certain? And unable to deal with that, I, I had a very trenchant kind of conservative theology. So looking back uh, at the number of times I've changed my mind theologically, politically, philosophically, I realized none of this we can hold with absolute certainty. And one of the, one of the firm things I hold to is the inability to be firm about any of this. And yet the paradox is that we have to live our lives, we have to act. And I suppose what I've discovered is act as passionately as you can, as honestly as you can, but always be prepared to discover that you may be wrong about something. Mm. I, I, frequently when I'm giving a lecture, I ask people to uh, think of what I call the 100 years test. Project yourself forward 100 years, look back at, at your community, your constituency, where you lived, and ask yourself, what back then did they think was all right that you now look upon with horror? I mean, think, for instance, of slavery. Mm -hmm. We thought slavery, uh, which is mandated in the Bible and in the Quran, we thought slavery was okay until 200 years ago. It was only then that we realized, no, this is this is wrong. You can't, you can't do this to your fellow human beings. Um, and we're still not over that. I mean, the, the passionate debates that are going on in America are because of the heritage of slavery and that particular political culture. This stuff never goes away. So one of the things I've kind of learned over the years is trying to live as strongly and as passionately as you can, but also be prepared to discover that you may be wrong about something. And that's not a failure, that's a gain. But it's very difficult um, to, to live with that. And I suppose the other thing I've learned is that there is no single take on truth, which is why there's usually a left and a right. And I don't think that you, sh if you're left or right, don't think that you've got it. Realize that you have to have it in balance with the other. And that's, that's what I love about intellectual, political, and theological debate. It's, it's this, the yin and yang mm. of theology and philosophy is actually what keeps us honest. Have your own uh, position, but be open to others because it may correct yours. It's, I think the, the thing you mentioned there about the, the honesty to just, uh, you know, admit to the doubt. You were talking earlier about being a, a conservative preacher, preaching against your own inner doubt and, and things like that. The honesty that shines through in this book is unlike anything I've, you know, it, it's another level on any honesty I've encountered. I've been part of faith communities where people are happy to talk about doubt, but really it's doubt. But at the end of the day, we all still are going home, believing God exists. No one's going to say, oh, but I don't believe there is anything greater going on here. So it's, it's doubt, but really it's very safe doubt in a sense. I think reading the book, it was clear to me that um, that honesty is kind of necessary to examine whether or not the stories we're living by are healthy or unhealthy. It's not until you can be that honest that you can examine it. Why do you think we are afraid, whatever our story is, whether we, we are in the Christian story, the Islamic story, the cultural story, why are we so afraid to be really honest about what we're not sure about? Maybe because it's painful. Um, living with uncertainty is tough. Um, I, I often say to people that uh, the opposite of faith is not doubt. It's certainty. I mean, um, I'm certain about the two times table. I can do it on my fingers at the moment. Uh, two plus two equals four. I can't be certain about the existence of God. Um, and I know that my mind is capable of picking up things. Um, I mean, there are celebrated examples of, of, uh, of, of an, an accident occurring 
five people are asked to give a description and they all give a different description. We see things not as they are, but as we are. Um, uh, we're all born into a world with a particular genetic and psychological makeup, historical circumstances. These all uh, influence what we see when we think we see things. And we think we see things as they are, as they're actually happening. But we see them through the filter of our own actuality, which is why I think we have to learn a kind of almost musical balance um, we have to go on living and conducting our lives and being as strong as we can, but always open to the possibility we're hearing the wrong note, we're getting the wrong angle on this. And this is tough. This mm. is very difficult to do. Uh, people want to be certain how to vote. They want to be certain what to believe. Um, and so living this kind of um, almost floating existence isn't easy. I haven't found it easy myself. Um, uh, hence, I've I persuaded myself of, of rival certainties over the years. But one of the things I've discovered uh, towards the end of my life is that a kind of liberation in saying, no, I just don't know, um, mm. but I'm going to have a crack. I'm going to live according to this kind of value. Uh, and I think the one test is, does your uncertain belief or your certain belief hurt other people? And it seems to me that should be the great test. It's a great medical test. Do no harm. Mm. And if your philosophy, your theology, your politics hurt other people, then you need radically to examine them. Um, and I guess all of this stuff I've been jumbling all my life, um, compensating for my own mistakes, my own sins, my own errors. Um, and I found at the end, I'm quite, I'm quite content just not, to know um, and to know that my mind is a very fallible instrument yet it's great having been alive it's great having discovered a lot of beauty and truth and uncertainty and what i usually say to people at the end i like religion sung not said poetry not prose because they can elevate my emotions and make me more compassionate to others it's the prose of religion it's the sadness of religion that makes people hard. So start singing and start reciting poetry and life will be kinder. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's lovely. That's lovely. And and it's it's interesting, Peter, it occurs to me that as the dean of a cathedral in, you know, a major city that when people see you, they probably expect, you know, and, and you, Sue, uh, you as well, Sue, and, and you in your role when you're in the church, Richard, people probably look at the the collar people probably look at the role and probably project certainty onto you they they clearly intellectually believe this and are certain and are totally inflexible um how how hard has that been for you peter in your in your day-to-day -day life to come up against people who believe that the narrative you've bought into is not only a conservative one that maybe is harming people but is absolutely rigid about its certainty um, yeah, that certainly is often the uh, assumption people make. And uh, if they find out that I'm a scientist by first training, they ask me when I stop believing in science. Um, <laughs> but, but, uh, but I have to say that the day-to-day -day is more about engaging with people who actually want to explore uh, with, their, with their doubts. Mm. And they are looking for places uh, where they can ask the big questions and then live into them. And um, I think one of the privileges of being here is that over many decades, they've established that this is a place of inquiry. And so um, I've been very blessed in my ministry here. Um, it's more the people who don't know who we are that begin with the assumption that we're going to be intolerant. And, uh, you know, I've... I've been advocating for um, gay and lesbian people since I was in my uh, early 20s. And it, it's, it is a bit hard when someone stops me in the street and tells me that I'm a bigot because I hate gay people. Um, but, you know, you have to wear that because that's, um, that's what the church has projected. And if I'm a symbol of the church, I have to, you know, I, I did have, you know, I did have one guy spit in my face once because I was a bigot and obviously a bigot because I was a priest. Uh, but day-to-day, but -day, it's actually meeting people who are really open to inquiry and 
I'm finding more often than not, there's a huge sigh of relief when um, I actually affirm people in their desire for inquiry rather than certainty. Mm. And the people who come seeking certainty soon move on to another shore to, to get the answers thereafter because I make it very clear very quickly that we are in the process of exploring an encounter and I, you know, I certainly agree with Richard that we're looking for the poetry of life and the poetry of existence and the music. Uh, two, two of the great mysteries of humanity are music and poetry as, as well as doubt and self-reflection. Mm. I mean, why music? Music is just fantastic, but why? Why do we have it? Mm. <laughs> yeah. 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 That, that's the extraordinary... Well, one of the extraordinary things about us, I mean... The universe may just be a great kind of thrust of colliding rocks. It may not come from anywhere. And yet it's produced us. It's yeah. produced poets and musicians and painters and theologians, people who think, um, people who care. That, that, that keeps me poised on the edge of what I think of as a possible ultimate transcendent meaning. The fact that, that we popped into existence. Um, uh, we built cathedrals, we composed great, great symphonies, um, uh, our poets are still scribbling away, I do a wee bit of poetry myself. Isn't that extraordinary? I mean, that should keep us in awe as well. Um, mm. So I, I think, I think the, the kind of the dominant fascistic unbelief is just as unpoetic as fascistic overbelief. Keep <laughs> poised, keep dancing, um, don't trudge. Yeah, yeah, and, and I think Richard, that was something I loved about about your writing in this book. And in, in you know, it's been constant in you. This doesn't feel like an academic exercise to you. This doesn't feel like, you know, well, this is theology one hundred and one. Sit down, let's teach it and get it out. It, it's quite clear this comes from a place of your own unquenchable curiosity. That that you look around and just go, what on earth is this? What what on earth are we doing to be you know to be humans, to be alive, to be seeing things, hearing music. It's such a deeply sort of soulful thing for you. Are, are you surprised that maybe more, as you look around, more people aren't, aren't confused or just blown away by the mystery of life? I think a lot of them, when you actually get them, if you get them in moments of um, uncertainty, perilous moments, um, after a death, after a bereavement, um, faced um, with a terrible illness, you get all sorts of, possibilities of opening. I think that um, a lot of this is partly to do with the male domination of a lot of these disciplines. I mean, mm. um, only recently have we had women um, in uh, as, as bishops and as priests, even as theologians. Um, and I think there is something, um, something about the male it, it may even be a kind of testosterone trip. I think a lot of men um, they believe in a kind of dominance. I think I think the genes almost produce it, especially alpha males. You can get alpha male theology, alpha male philosophy, alpha male science. Um, I love reading the correspondence columns in my local newspaper, The Scotsman. It's a daily newspaper. And there's a whole page of letters to the editor. And they're all written by very certain people. They all contradict each other. <laughs> uh, there's one guy I love who's an ordained scientist, and he knows everything. And every week there's a letter from him telling us exactly um, uh, why we're wrong about COVID or why we're wrong about Scottish independence, because he knows everything. And I think how wonderful to be that certain about everything. And yet how boring to be that person. <laughs> you've got it all sorted. Yeah, yeah. It must be deeply gratifying and yet deeply, deeply boring. And but if you, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm a kind of ranting on here. It seems to me that life is so gloriously unpredictable and uncertain. Let let's let's see the beauty in that mm. and not be threatened by it, because it's it's our certainties that crucify, whereas it's our uncertainties give us that kind of balletic flexibility, both intellectually and psychologically and ethically. Um, and that's the kind of stuff I've, I increasingly love in my life. Um, I, I'm... I'm I'm compiling an anthology of mainly poetry at the moment um, to get us to think um, about the complexity of being human um, 
how were as as one one poet I've just I've just uh, typed into my file created sick commanded to be whole by a, by a, 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 an 18th century English nobleman that's part of the predicament we human beings are formed by genetic and circumstantial circumstances um, that we didn't uh, ourselves create um, old um, Larkin got it they fuck you up your mum and dad they do not mean to but they do they fill you with the faults they had and add some extra just for you but they were fucked up in their turn by fools in old time hats and coats who half the time were soppy sweet and half at one another's throats man hands on misery to man it deepens like a coastal shelf get out as quickly as you can and don't have any kids yourself and Larkin didn't of course so we are formed by processes, historical and genetic and psychological, that we were never in control of. And yet we are commanded to be perfect creatures, created sick, commanded to be whole. Understand the complexity of your own being and that you're not entirely responsible for the way you've responded to this challenge or that temptation. Seek self-understanding and then learn to forgive yourself and the other complex human beings that you struggle with that's much more a much more interesting way than to be to have these crucifying certainties that get you figuring out other people don't figure out enjoy the mystery of it all mm. yeah am you, i allowed to swear on this i'm sorry I've already yeah, you absolutely that. are <laughs> i think that's a good old anglo-saxon yeah. word anyway yeah not the first <laughs> no definitely not um, it, it's, it's really interesting you say this, Richard, because a thought just came to my mind then about a moment I was in a, a church a few years ago and we used a, a roomy poem um, as part of the service. And it was, I can't remember which one it was, but it, it used the themes of, you know, who is looking out with my eyes? What is the soul? I can't stop asking. And I had yeah. this hilarious, yeah. almost yeah. sitcom-esque moment after the service where the pastor turned to me and said, oh, I've never wondered that. I mean, Jesus is the answer. Isn't it really obvious? And I just wanted to laugh because it was this moment of, of this is a church traditionally is a place people who can't stop asking the question, what is the soul? What is this? come to and and it made no sense to the person who was the leader of this place mm -hmm. it's almost like you know a hungry person showing up to a restaurant and the the chef saying what do you mean you're hungry what do you want from me mm -hmm. i don't do food that's not what i'm here for mm -hmm. there is this bizarre thing where the thing stopped being about the thing it was about somewhere along the journey and i i think you you touch on this in terms of examining the stories we've told ourselves throughout time and not just what the stories are but how we've we've misread them how they've actually stopped being about being alive and become about rules and prescriptions. Can I just say, I, I think the uh, the word here is passion in the way that you live life and the way that you write and think about and the way you answer these questions. I think, Richard, you, you write with a lot of passion because it's actually really deeply in touch with yourself. Um, and and it's it's your own honest personal experience and that your interaction with the world and I think what happens sometimes and like the example Dom you're giving there mm. of a pastor who could say but you know we've got the answer haven't we you know how far removed from your own personal passion and vitality have you become that you think you've got all the answers um, and that you're shutting down the questions that have been naturally arising up across your life and yet you shut them down and that takes you away from passion but it takes you know just that connection connection to other people and I do wonder too at the at the masculine domination of a theological kind of conversation mm. um at, at why that passion seems to have got lost why when um 50 of the human race um starts to talk in in very cerebral terms and starts to um disconnect from that basic life force what what's actually going wrong here too mm. I think one of them one of the big mistakes we make um, in, in the religion game is that we, we fail to realize that religion is an art, not a science. Um, it, it's an art of storytelling. And just think what we've done, for instance, historically with the story of Adam and Eve. It's a myth. Now, a myth is not an untruth. Um, it's something that didn't happen that happens all the time. It's a story. It's a way a colorful way of actually describing our humanity. We know there wasn't a historic Adam and Eve 
6,000 years ago in a particular garden. But we know it's happening in Brisbane this afternoon. It's happening in my part of Edinburgh today. Humans are filled with discontent. They're filled with kind of wandering lust and uneasiness. Um, Karen Armstrong um, says, uh, defines a myth as something that happens all the time. It didn't happen once, it happens all the time. And somehow we've lost the art of seeing religion as an art, as a way of interpreting the human condition. We've tried to scientize it. Uh, the, the conservative philosopher Roger Scruton said this. Um, Nietzsche pointed out to the fact that we somehow lose the capacity to read and understand and profit from myth. And we try to scientize it. We try to we try to turn it into um, a knowledge system rather than a form of art that can exhilarate and depress and challenge us and judge us. And I don't know when that actually started happening. I mean, it was going on with St. Augustine of Hippo, a man I revere, but because he read the Adam and Eve story literally, um, and he believed that sex was what what brought the fall to us, were born uh, were born damned, uh, according to Augustine's definite uh, reading of the Adam and Eve story. And it was women who were responsible for it. The woman gave me an idadit, Adam says to God, and therefore woman is condemned. I mean, that's been that's been the history of women and religious traditions. Um, there grew up a tradition in the early church that if only we could stop having sex, the kingdom would come as if that was ever going to happen. And so you get all this deep repressed sexuality in male celibate religions. And God, we know uh, all the scandals that occur. Those of us who examine ourselves know we, we, we've been guilty of, of this stuff as well. It's hard for men not to. Um, and all because they don't know how to read an ancient story, an ancient yeah. myth. It's a piece of poetry that informs our living but doesn't give us actual historical facts. That's that. That's boring stuff, um, and that that deeply got into uh, Christian consciousness. And so you've got the absurdity of some Christians who actually believe um, that the biblical account of a six-day creation. I mean, why? Why can't you see that Genesis is, is a great operatic myth, a piece of running poetry, made-up stuff? You can even imagine the guys sitting around the campfire telling these stories. And I just don't get it. You lose all the beauty and magic and, and, and creativity of religion if you scientize it and you turn it into a silly science. You insist that in spite of the evidence um, that the, the wonderful enterprise of science has given us, that science is wrong. And so you've got these theme parks in America, creationist theme parks, where um, the, 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 uh, I, I'm just going to stop. It's just so sad that we <laughs> trap ourselves in this scientizing of what is poetry. I mean, when Wordsworth said, I saw um, a, a cloud of daffodils laughing and dancing in the breeze, a literalist takes that and insists that the, daff the daffodils actually laughed the wee souls, the wee yellow souls, they weren't. It's a metaphor. <laughs> yeah, and, and I, I actually think this is this was a, a sort of a light bulb moment for me reading the book where you unpack the fall and the Adam and Eve story because it is a question that I think uh, I've received uh, or been asked a number of times from people who know that um, I sort of ha have a, a deep interest in faith. People will say, when the hell did Christianity become about sex? Because where everything I've heard about the Jesus thing really didn't seem like it touched on sex at all. But every church I've ever gone to or been a part of, sex is the big talking point. It doesn't even seem to be... Like if you ran a conference on Jesus's agenda and it went for three weeks, I don't even know if you'd have like a half-hour conversation about sex. I don't know if it's in there anywhere, really. But you sort of mark how it became this central thing um, through the misreading of the Adam and Eve story. I know you've touched on it a little bit there, but can you just in a little more depth unpack sort of step-by-step step how the misreading Adam and Eve gave us all of this sexual baggage that we have today? I think actually it comes down to a, a misreading of stories, uh, a misreading of genres. I mean, um, if, if religion is an art, not a science, um, and if, if it's... It, if its mode is poetry and myth, um, and you 
there comes a time when it loses that self-understanding um, and insists on scientizing, taking them literally. Um, and that's certainly what happened to um, uh, the Adam and Eve myth, the story of the Garden of Eden. Um, Nietzsche has a wonderful paragraph uh, where he points out that one of the things that kills religion is a failure to understand how myth operates. Um, if you if you actually try to turn the myth into historical reality, you lose the beauty and, and the, the teachingness of it because it becomes useless to you because sensible people know that that's not the way it happened. But if you keep the myth as myth, it can you, you can say, in what way, um, where I live and in my own life, am I replicating the Adam and Eve story? Um, my contempt for women, my longing for women, my desire for women, the way I hate desiring women, and therefore that turns itself into hatred of women. There's been a lot of hatred of women in Christian history, indeed in religious history, because it's, it's in Islam, it's in lots of other religions as well, because the woman gave me and I did eat. That, that, that's the founding um, accusation against women. And what happened to that particular story it probably in the early church, um, they didn't scientize it too much. They were too busy waiting for the uh, for the end of the world. I mean, that, that one of the things we forget about early Christians, they didn't expect to be settling down. They thought he was coming back. He was going to wind up history and there would be the kingdom of God. There's one reason why there's no settled ethic in Paul, um, but it didn't happen. The wait continued, and we're still waiting. Uh, we're in the Advent season at the moment, and the Advent is all about waiting. Come down, O Lord. Come, come, come. And we've had to learn to existentialize that, that a lot of stuff never actually comes in its finality. You live in the in-between time. But what happened specifically to the Adam and Eve story, I think it was, around, it was in the fifth century, there was a strange kind of pessimism around then about everything um, and you get a lot of deep pessimism in religion and uh, Augustine of Hippo great genius uh, obsessed with his own uh, tormented sexuality um, when he converted to Christianity became persuaded that that was the, the most evil part of his life and his interpretation of the Adam and Eve story he treated it not as a myth, but as a historical event. Um, and there's even a, a moment in his exegesis of it. He says, undi eki. There, that's the point. It's when, um, and I've already quoted it, when um, God says to Adam and Eve, because they've hid themselves, who told you that you were naked? Um, and that's where Augustine says, sexuality is the source of the of our original sin and the source of sexuality is the woman's temptation of the man and from that there was built into christianity a profound mistrust of sex uh, they they finally got around to licensing it um, carefully under very controlled circumstances if you got married i mean the old prayer book service says that marriage was instituted by god uh, for those who did not have the gift of continence, it was like a concession to you. You know, if you couldn't hold it in, you could get a license. You could get a license, um, like a vehicle driving license, to drive it. But it was, but it was always second best. Be much better if you couldn't, if, if you couldn't, if you stopped doing it or never did it. Now, come on. We know that's impossible. It's a deep biological urge. It can be beautiful. It can be cruel. And so it, it shoved it underground. And it, it, it infected not, not just the great Roman Catholic Church um, with its passion for celibacy. And we know the effect that's had. Um, but it, 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 it infected all other churches as well. And so Christianity came not to be about the liberation of God's grace and the importance and the imperative of forgiveness, but about keeping your sexuality under control. What a way to go th through life. Um, just, just as well, with the brakes on all the time, uh, stuck in a lay-by, not allowed to drive and enjoy and make mistakes and be forgiven for them. And, and yeah, you're right. Um, that's why a lot of young people... Um, the, the, 
the generation born in the last 15 years, the last 20 years, the millennial generation, have no time for religion because they're honestly sexual creatures. Uh, they believe in not hurting each other, but, but they see sex as a great gift, a great glory, a great, a, a great source of pleasure, as well as torment. Um, and they look at Christianity and they see it as anti-life, anti-sex. Ah, oh, for God's sake. Mm. <laughs> yeah, Pathetic. Yeah, I was actually really grateful for a couple of things in that section of your book, Richard. One was that what you've, which you've just unpacked now, talking about how um, male obsession with sex led to actually hatred of women and how, you know, I don't think many people always articulate that clearly to put that together because, I, you know, I think we've witnessed that a lot. Um, I also like your idea of that licensing there, you know, the, uh, the, the way that that is also played out, particularly in uh, conservative circles. It's not just a, a license uh, for uh, that you can have sex. It's actually when you get married, it's also just a license. Anything goes once you are married. And I was reading in a, um, it was a DV book recently, just it was, um, you know, giving, giving um, people some understanding of what to look for, what constitutes abuse, you know, and you do have to wonder as a church where we have got to, and it's interesting tracing these roots all the way back to Augustine, that we have um, have to write as one of the indicators of abuse, quoting scripture to pressure into sex is an abusive thing, mm. you know, and it was actually in this DV book and I went, oh gosh, and that's because of that license. Not only is it a license to have sex, but to conservative fundamentalist believers, then it's also a license to do whatever you like. And you don't have to have normal human love and compassion within that marriage because the marriage is just your prego. Yeah, thanks for that. And I think most men um, know there's there's a lot of brutalist sexuality in their makeup. I mean, especially if you're if you're driven in a particular way. It, it it's one reason why um, men have to repent of a lot in this, um, not just um, in a historical sense, but almost, uh, but also in a personal sense. They have to. In what ways have I done this? In what ways have I and I've I have to confess this myself. In what ways have I objectified women? Um, in what ways have I insisted on um, sexual release in my own conduct within my own relationships? I think most men will admit um, that there is something about the, the, the power of this, um, this instinct that they really have to get under control. It can be beautiful. It's, it can be filled with enormous pleasure. It can also result in a kind of contempt. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, it is complicated being human mm -hmm. because we, we, we don't have the kind of freedom of the animals simply to be what they are. We are reflective animals. Um, and we have to recognize that very often our sexuality, um, all our other appetites as well for control have to be um, examined. And one of the great things I love about the confessional system in Christianity is that when I go to Mass on a Sunday morning, um, I like the little moment where I'm asked to reflect on my conduct that week. Um, um, and I confess my sins with, with the community, both personal and communal. Um, and we have to recognize that, 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 that we um, uh, creatures in the so-called developed world have imposed uh, patterns of abuse on other parts of the world, racial and economic. I think all of this, the great thing I like about Christianity is that it's based on a kind of self-examination that we know is unconditionally forgiven. Once you own who you are, once you say yes to your own manifest um, uh, mistakes, the, the, the stuff you've done, that, that you, don't, you don't wallow in that. You recognize, yeah, I've done that, but Jesus also forgives me and I have to forgive myself. So the power of forgiveness and the power of, of, of honest self-examination are immensely releasing. And if we could preach and develop an understanding of these things and see it as a liberation theology, not as a theology of, of, of condemnation. Christianity would become a lightsome dancing kind of thing, a liberating thing, whereas it so often comes over as a heavy, plodding, uh, guilt-bashing thing. What a sadness. Yeah. And, and life-affirming too is what you're saying there because I think the, um, 
it was the other thing that you you unpacked in that same Adam and Eve story is is, is following St Paul's thinking about what he was railing against was actually against death, not against sex. You know that that Paul stood up and shook his fist and went, "That's the that's the final enemy," um, and and said that that was what what Jesus was doing was was overturning death and that the liberation was actually for life. And so much of the hang up over sex is actually death dealing stuff. It actually doesn't doesn't allow the grace within it. The sort of thing you're describing as self awareness, yeah, confession, being, um, but actually not negating, shoving down, pretending that that driving life force doesn't exist or it's going to just break out in sneaky ways that I'm just going to deny myself or Mm. actually not admit to myself but that honesty can actually be a life releasing force absolutely Uh, I go with that yeah there there was one moment in this part of the book Richard where you know if there was an if someone put an orchestral score to your book this is where the the music would sweep it was just it it was totally (laughs) capturing me you unpacked all the ways in which this approach to sex and sexuality has been toxic to relationships toxic to men toxic to women how it's caused so much harm how it's really as as well as all that just been an enormous waste of time um you know when we could have been gathering to discuss the the stuff Jesus is talking about instead we've been like happened to me in youth group, making kids sign cards promising to save sex for marriage or or just focusing on it again and again. What a waste of time. And all of that's happened. And you wrote wrote this this sentence, which was incredibly liberating. You said, and all this over something that never happened, except for the (laughs) imagination of a writer, except in the pages of a fiction. No serpent, no tree of knowledge of good and evil, no innocently naked man and woman, just a story, a myth that needs interpreting but should never be read literally, that's precisely how these Christian thinkers read it and cast a web of suspicion over human sexuality that loaded it with complexity and sullied it with unnecessary guilt. It is, um, I guess that that is the the proof in the pudding, to, to put it that way, of how important the stories we tell ourselves are, that the first story many of us are told, the Genesis story, you read it wrong and it can cause generations and generations and generations of damage and time wasted. Oh, God, I know, I know. Isn't that the real heartbreak? Um, there's one life that we get, we, we kind of muck up because um, simple things like stories, because people don't know how to read stories. You should take them seriously, but never literally. Um, and the, the Bible is full of stories of that sort. Um, and that's why I, I don't want to lose it. But we've probably deprived a whole generation of intelligently reading it simply because we've scientized it, we've legalized it. Instead of seeing it as a great bundle of myth, and there's a lot of horror in the Bible. I mean, there's a lot of stuff in the Old Testament that's, that's grim because we're grim. It reflects us. It reflects our capacity for goodness, our proneness to evil, all of that. I mean, it, it's a mirror in which we can see our own humanity reflected. Um, Treat it as an art uh, and you can learn much from it. Mm. It's, uh, I suppose there's a lot of language that comes through when Jesus speaks about being set free, which, you know, has been transformed into being set free from this wrathful God or whatever else. But when you think of it in this way, it's a liberation um, of all this stuff we've put on ourselves in a sense. And, and I think that was, that's, that's, if someone said in one word, describe the experience reading this book, liberating would be how I found it. And I, I'm just wondering, you know, um, as someone who, what, 60 years ago, oddly you were, you were ordained as you've been on this, um, tremendous journey of life in, you know, in the tradition, out of the tradition, living by a whole bunch of different stories, what, what is the story now? How would you articulate the story now that you feel gives you the most life and, and liberates you most? In the book, I spend a bit of time um, looking at a remarkable man called Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was imprisoned for a conspiracy against Hitler. He was put to death. And while he was in prison, he wrote a series of remarkable letters um, to a friend of his, Eberhard Betke. Um, And he's meditating on um, uh, the meaning of God for us today, the meaning of of Jesus for us today. And he came up with with some remarkable insights. Uh, One of them uh, was that um, we have to follow 
the ethic of Jesus, whether or not God exists. And he, he quoted a phrase that comes from a medieval jurist, uh, we have to live, we have to do good, etsy deus non dereta, as if God did not exist. In other words, contemplate why you behave the way you do if, if you're trying to behave well. Um, are you doing it because good behavior is its own meaning, or are you doing it because you're cravenly obeying um, a superior uh, power, God? Um, do you do good because God commands it, or does God command it because it is good? In other words, it comes down to doing good for its own sake. Um, and in these letters, he, he meditates on this extraordinary mystery that maybe even God, God's self, is calling us to live and act as if that God were not there. Because what God wants from us is good, loving, courageous behavior for its own sake, and not because we're, uh, we're obedient slaves. Um, and uh, at, at the end of, of the book, I, I kind of, because I'm a pretty godless Christian, I'm, I'm very uncertain about, about the reality of God. I'm not all that um, interested in the debate any longer, but I am interested in the way that Jesus did two very radical things in his ministry. Um, and I'm, I'm not saying that Jesus was a 21st century Christian. Jesus was um, a devout Jew of his time, but he was a revolutionary. And he, he pointed to two things. He wanted us to see the world from the bottom up, not from the top down. He belonged to um, that discarded class of the people at the bottom of society. And he wanted us to figure out what it looked like, what it felt like to be, to be at, at, at the receiving end of this great political and economic pressure. And the world is still filled with that. I mean, my own, my own um, uh, country, Britain, uh, the number of people who don't have food to eat, the number of people who don't have enough money um, uh, to, to heat their houses during a cold winter in Britain, this, this is scandalous. And Jesus, the imperative of Jesus is to think of them, to see what it feels like to be them, and the radical nature of forgiveness, that we all um, do stuff partly out of ignorance, sometimes out of um, a kind of intelligent wickedness, um, and we damage others. And if we, let, if we let our actions just run right through history, they compound themselves and nothing is ever remedied. And what he wants us to do is to accept that we do these terrible things to each other, but before retaliating and responding with an equally um, terrible reaction, we should pause and think, can I interrupt this? Can I stop this sequence happening? And politically, we very rarely do that. Offense leads to counteroffense, leads to a further counteroffense. And so the whole story keeps going, all the wars and tumults that characterize our history. And what he calls on us to do is to identify with the people at the bottom of the social and political heap, and also to look at ways in which our actions that offend and oppress and damage each other, the sequence might be interrupted and rethought. And so we might stop the flow of all, the, of all this abuse happening. Radical forgiveness and a kind of radical political vision of improving life, especially for the people at the bottom. I find this in the story of Jesus tough to live by, but I'm much more interested in applying that ethic than in spending hours debating whether there is an ultimate creator, whether the universe popped into existence out of nothing, whether there is a God. These, I think, are irrelevant questions. And Bonhoeffer in these letters says that himself. And he, he was a, a believer in God, and he, he told us, he said, God doesn't want you to waste your time believing or wondering about him. God wants you to act with a radical, compassionate goodness towards the needy. Mm. That's enough for me. I, I don't pull it off very easily, but I'd rather live by that than waste time wrestling about the possibility of a transcendent reality. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. <laughs> 
Well, and I think, and you do touch on this in the book too, and it reminds me of a comment, Sue, that we had uh, from Trip Fuller the last, when he joined us on a recent podcast. And Tripp uh, told, told a story of his friend in college days when they were studying theology. And the friend said, I would love to, to be kind to people, to love people, and to fight for social justice, but sound doctrine is getting in the way. Um, <laughs> this, and, and it was such, a, it was such a, an aha sort of moment of, of course, yeah. that so much of the time, the, the, would God want this or this? Or, you know, you'll have people sitting around going, oh, would God be okay with gay people? being in happy, loving relationships, as yeah. if that's a question worth even worth even asking. Yeah, here we are. Here we are with the planet is being trashed by greed and self-interest and uh, political systems that are falling off the cliff. And uh, our church, for instance, here in Australia, is absolutely obsessed with, still obsessed with sexuality and gender. Mm. And yet there are these huge questions before us that need to be uh, faced and I think the faith has incredible capacity to face them we've just got to get sort of out of our underpants and out back out into the real world I think <laughs> <laughs> yep <laughs> yeah it's a beautiful way of putting it Peter so look uh, Richard it, it, it's been a pleasure spending the time having this conversation I guess as a closing question um, you know and, and in a sense I do see the the way in which this question uh, isn't entirely relevant to even ask after the conversation we've had, but I'm curious to know at, um, at 87 with a tremendously long and varied journey that you've had, um, through the tradition. Uh, I know that Oprah Winfrey often ends her interview. She asks people, what's one thing, you know, for sure. Um, <laughs> and that there is this profound humility that comes through in your book where you're not really trying to assert too much for sure. And you're deeply aware of any biases or prejudices that might come through with what you say. But I'm interested to ask you, if someone said, what's one thing that you feel you, you know, for sure, do, do, is there an answer you could give or are you at the stage where you're just, um, just caught up in the whole mystery? The answer I give is actually a very trite one. Um, it's be kind. I mean, it's not an answer. It's just that, that, um, the word kind comes from um, we're all in this together of kith and, and of kind. Um, and I, I suppose um, interrogate your beliefs, um, your capacities, and ask whether they increase kindness or whether they decrease it. Uh, I mean, it, it's as simple as that. Very often, I think the great, the great radical ethical challenges come down to real simplicities. Um, and I think that that um, interrogate yourself, ask the complex political and theological stuff that goes on in my head. Um, how does that express and present itself in my daily living? Um, if it makes me ruthless and chilly and cold, and maybe you're instinctively like that, um, then interrogate that. Um, if it makes you reach out, I mean, it, it's all there, actually, um, at, in Matthew's gospel, a cup of cold water in the name of a disciple. This sounds so trite, um, but in fact, it's profoundly revolutionary. If we could discover in us a kind of identification with the humanity of others, especially those that are having a hard time, um, the bereaved, the depressed, um, the poor, the homeless, the hungry, um, it's tough knowing how to respond to that, but at least respond, at least open your heart to the possibility that you might make a difference, even if it's just buying a copy of the big issue at the street corner, um, giving money to a food bank, um, giving a bit of time. And one of the things I'm, I, I'm proud of in Britain is that a lot of the people who are feeding the hungry in our culture at the moment are local parish churches. Um, you know, they're opening their halls as food banks. I mean, it's absurd that in 21st century Britain, we have people starving and having to go to church halls to get a meal. Mm. Isn't, that, isn't that outrageous? Mm. So try the kindness <clears throat> test. Do your politics, does your religion promote kindness towards the others? Um, or do you pass by on the other side because you're, 
your, your theology doesn't permit you. And that's, that's the real story of the Good Samaritan. It was their theology that stopped them going to the assistance of the man who'd fallen among thieves. It wasn't that they were unkind, but their theology, their religion told them you couldn't touch a dead person, you couldn't go to the aid of someone who was racially impure, a Jew if you were a Samaritan, a Samaritan if you were a Jew. And the parable says, forget all this religious stuff, all this indoctrination, go to the need of the person who's fallen among thieves, because it is the right thing to do. It's the kind thing to do. Kindness is courageous and radical. Start it. Mm. Yeah, beautiful, beautiful place to, to land. Sue and Peter, any other comments, questions from either of you? Thank you, Richard. You're a legend. Yeah, I have. Yeah, I think being able to voice what you have voiced in your many books, and and this is not the first of your books I've read. I've I've loved all of them, but I found particularly unpacking the stories and particularly picking up Bonhoeffer, um, that has Bonhoeffer's words been haunting me for some time. That um, you know, living um, without God. I think it's something like you know, before God and with God, we are asked to live without God. Um, yep. And I think that when we talk about sound doctrine getting in the way, mm. I think somehow we negotiate in, in a kind of faltering way this life with God whilst um, trying to have an eye to what is kind, what is loving, and not rely on any kind of a safety net of, of doctrine to give us any sure and certain answers. Mm, Thank you. And Richard, I I know that you said the book before this one you've just released was going to be probably your last book. You've come out with another. Have you got another book in you? Uh, Well, I'm working on this anthology um, at the moment. um, And I I mean, it's a lifelong addiction. I'll probably be typing away while I'm on an an iron lung. um, (laughs) (laughs) That's that's the way it'll go. Well, (laughs) no complaints here. Uh, Write as much as you want to. We we would absolutely love it. It's been a a treat to spend an hour with you, um, Richard. Thank you very much. Well, loved you all and send me some of that Brisbane sunshine. (laughs) (laughs) I wish we could. We'll do our best. (laughs) 